Uh, let me come to God in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please help me to speak your word faithfully now. Uh, may I teach it and apply it in a right way that honours Jesus. Uh, help us by your spirit to be changed by your word and keep growing us into a church that pleases Jesus in all we do. Amen. Uh, if the Lord Jesus was to walk into our church and spend the next 12 months with us, what do you think he'd say at the end of his time with us? Uh, if he came and attended our services, visited our growth groups, popped into our ministries, came along to the odd snack event, what do you think he would say? Would he be happy with how we're going, our approach to church? Imagine how encouraging it would be to hear Jesus say of us, well done. You guys are on the right track, living in line with the way I want you to. Keep going well, keep going because you're doing well. Imagine how deflating it would be to hear our Saviour say of us, guys, you need to change because you're not on the right track and you're not doing life together in the way I want you to. There's a world of difference between those two evaluations, isn't there? Now, some of you might think, well, man, Jesus coming into our church, that would mean some serious stuff. Uh, I don't know how we're currently doing, but we'd really have to make sure we got church right at that point, I think. Glad it's only a hypothetical suggestion. Well, the truth is that it's actually not just hypothetical. See, our risen Lord Jesus, though reigning in heaven, is said to be present among his churches. He dwells with us by his spirit. In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we get the vision of Jesus walking among the churches in the province of Asia. Some of those churches he commends, some he rebukes. The point there is that Jesus knows all, he sees all, and he actually cares deeply about the faithfulness of the community of people he's purchased by his own precious blood. So as we begin another year together as the 5 p.m. congregation, we actually need to let that sink in. Our Lord Jesus does dwell among us. He sees how we're living. He cares about us. And he actually calls us to live his way as his church. But how do we know if we're on the right track? How should we be living? What should we be doing as a church in order to please Jesus? Where can we go for guidance and advice? Well, thankfully, God's word gives us an example of a church that's going well, an example to learn from. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we hear Jesus, through his apostle Paul, describing the church of the Thessalonians which Paul says is a model for other churches. You became a model for all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Uh, as we heard in Acts 17, the first reading, Paul, on his second missionary journey, had brought the message of Jesus to this ancient city. A large number of Thessalonians, particularly pagan Thessalonians, had believed that message, uh, but Paul and his team were forced to abruptly flee that city when persecution broke out against them because of their message of Jesus. So the Thessalonian church was established amidst severe 
severe persecution, opposition, and the sudden departure of their main pastor and teacher, Paul. And yet, by God's grace, this church flourishes. And Paul, when he gets word of this church, gives thanks for what he hears, which is what we see in our passage. Now, as we'll see in this sermon series going forward over the next number of weeks, the Thessalonians weren't perfect. Like us, they were still comprised of saved sinners. But they were a church who, by and large, by and large lived in the way Jesus wanted them to. So tonight we're just going to spend some time looking at three things this church gets right, according to Paul. Now, chapter 1 tells us this church was driven by a gospel agenda, joyfully undeterred when opposition came, and genuinely repentant. They're the three things that I want to focus our attention on as we look at this chapter together. So first, this church, the Thessalonians, were driven by a gospel agenda. See, everything they do as a church flows from their passion for the gospel. That's the first thing Paul's giving thanks for. Now, perhaps you're joining us here tonight and you're not actually familiar with the term or the word gospel. Gospel literally means good news, but in many ways that probably doesn't do the word justice, particularly as it was used in ancient times. As we bring out in our Christianity Explored course, it's more like the announcement that war is finally over. It's the kind of news that makes people dance in the street and hug complete strangers. It's that good. The gospel of Jesus is the great news that says Jesus Christ died for sinners, that God raised him from the dead and that forgiveness and eternal life is now found in trusting him. No more condemnation for sin. No more fear of death. Just the glorious promise that the true and living God has accepted you, has saved you in his son. And you can almost imagine the Thessalonians dancing for joy in their homes as they came to believe that good news. Verse 6 tells us that they were filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit, but also look in verse 5 at how Paul describes the effect of the gospel on them. He writes, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. See, God had made sure they heard and believed the great news they were being told about Jesus. It hadn't come to them uh, as an interesting lecture by which they could merely expand their knowledge of world religions. But the gospel came to them with power. They were convicted of its truth and of its goodness. And th then it became the driving force behind all their church activity. See, look with me from verse 1. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Now listen to the gospel agenda. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, 
your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, notice that Paul's not just happy because he sees this community doing many good things, running a vibrant youth ministry, perhaps, operating soup kitchens, organizing outreach events. You see, it's not just the church activity that Paul's thankful for, but the love of the gospel message that gives rise to that activity. See, Paul doesn't just say, I thank God for your work, your labor, your endurance. No, it's your work produced by faith. That rich faith in Jesus as the one who died for their sins and rose to bring them forgiveness and new life. That's what gives rise to their ministries, their service, their evangelistic outreach. And notice it's your labor prompted by love. The love of Jesus who suffered for them was now being reflected in their loving service and sacrifice for one another. And it's your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were resilient as a church in the face of persecution because they knew the sure hope that Jesus would one day return and bring them safely to their eternal home. It would all be worth it. See, the Thessalonians remind us that to be a church that pleases Jesus, we must keep the gospel the center of our lives together, both individually and collectively as a church. If we depart from a gospel agenda, we depart from the kind of church culture Jesus wants within us. Don Carson, a well-known Christian writer, writes about the worrying tendency in many churches to focus on peripheral matters at the expense of the core message of the gospel. He writes about one of his colleagues uh, who came from a Christian denomination in the States called the Mennonites, and his colleagues summarized the kind of downward spiral of his denomination in the following way. He says, one generation of Mennonites believed the gospel as well and held as well that there were certain social, economic, and political entailments. The next generation, the next generation assumed the gospel, but identified with the entailments. That is, the gospel was there in the background, but not the main thing. The following generation denied the gospel, the entailments became everything. See, Jesus doesn't want us to depart from the first one there. He wants us to be a church in which the gospel stays central generation after generation. That's why we sing and pray and preach about Jesus every Sunday. That's why we encourage people not just to serve, but to serve in his name and out of Christ-like love for one another. That's why we run evangelistic courses which invite people to know the message of the gospel and find life in Jesus. Jesus is why we do what we do here. But for the gospel to remain truly central in our community here, it actually has to be central in the lives of we as individuals. Uh, Don Carson asks a good question. What is it in the Christian faith that excites you? 
See, today there are endless subgroups of confessing Christians who invest enormous quantities of time and energy in one issue or the other, writes Carson, abortion, pornography, homeschooling, women's ordination, for or against, economic justice, a certain style of worship, the defense of a particular Bible version, and countries have a full agenda of urgent peripheral demands. And perhaps in our current climate, we could add political activism to that as well. Not for a moment, writes Carson, am I suggesting that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them. But when such matters or when, when such matters overthrow or outweigh, uh, not, not for a moment as am I suggesting that we should not think about such matters or throw our weight behind some of them, but when such matters devour most of our time and passion, each of us must ask, in what fashion am I confessing the centrality of the gospel? Now, I'm sure the Thessalonians were inundated with a number of issues they could have given much of their time to. But you see, they got it right in that they kept the gospel message of Christ, crucified for sinners, central. So let's be like them, driven by a gospel agenda. But second, the Thessalonian church was joyfully undeterred when opposition broke out against them. I don't know about you, but I think it's easy to get deterred and discouraged as a Christian when opposition comes. Uh, when I feel like the world or the media kind of turns against Christians, I kind of find myself becoming more angry about the situation than I am joyful about the gospel. Uh, it can make me feel discouraged, uh, and it can make me uh, it can make sort of being open about my faith just that little bit more awkward and uncomfortable. I've been reminded of this recently with the Margaret Court controversy. Uh, Margaret Court was awarded a companion of the Order of Australia, our nation's highest honour, for her success as a tennis player and mentor to athletes. But many were appalled at that decision and criticised Court in the process. Why? Well, because she held to Jesus' teaching that marriage is between a man and a woman. Daniel Andrews even tweeted about her, referring to her views as disgraceful, bigoted, accusing her of spewing hate. Now, I suspect that for many Christians who hold to Jesus' teaching on human sexuality and marriage, those comments by our Premier were felt at a personal level. So how does Jesus want us to respond as a church in such moments of opposition and hostility? Should we become people who fight insult with insult? Will you call us bigots? Well, here's what I think of you, Dan. Should we be people who keep quiet about some things Jesus says? Perhaps we should choose sermon series that we think are more safe. Or maybe we should be people who just kind of turn inwards on ourselves and focus on looking after our own. You know, if the outside world is that opposed to us, well, what's the kind of point of engaging with them anyway? See, how did the Thessalonian church respond when they felt the force of opposition? And remember, their opposition was severe, verse 6. 
they had actually seen one of their brothers, in fact, a couple of them, Jason named, is named as one of them, dragged out of his home and abused by an angry mob. They had witnessed injustice. They had felt the hate of their neighbours towards them. They had experienced marginalisation for being Christians. And yet they remained joyfully undeterred. They got on with the job of being thankful Christians. You sort of see it there in verse 6, don't you? Read it with me. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. See, their, their response is an example of how we should respond. Not with insult, not by becoming overly distracted, not with discouragement, but with a joyful willingness to keep hold of that, what, of that which we know is true, the gospel, the life-giving gospel. And what I find so remarkable about the Thessalonian church is that when they felt opposition, they didn't turn inward, they kept looking outward. They kept making Jesus known to the world around them. You see it there in verse 8. The Lord's message stayed silent in their huddle. No, the Lord's message rang out, rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. See, when Christians are treated, are unfairly treated, there is, I think, a place for pointing out any lies or injustice injustice or hypocrisy coming from those who oppose us. But the Thessalonian church reminds us that in such times, we are to be known as people who hold on to our joy in the gospel and remain undeterred in our mission to let the Lord's message go out from us. Uh, Ruth and I were chatting last night after dinner about what it might look like to suffer well for being Christian, for being a Christian in days to come. It's not our usual clearing away the dishes conversation, but kind of came up. I was thinking about this passage a little bit. Uh, it actually came up off the back of another conversation about the change or suppression practices bill that's before Parliament. A bill that would potentially make some aspects of the Christian discipleship I do criminal. Uh, we talked about the fear of being charged with a criminal offence. We talked about the public shame that could come. We wondered what our neighbours who, who we're friends with might think of us in those kind of days. And maybe some of you have had those thoughts swirl around your head too. What will we do then? Well, we both agreed in that conversation that we actually do need to be like the Thessalonians. We keep rejoicing over the gospel that saves us. We keep remembering that we are loved by God, verse 4, and that he cares for us. And we remain undeterred in our mission to, keep, to live out and keep speaking of Jesus to our neighbours and to all those in our world where we can. The Thessalonians themselves show us that the gospel is powerful, verse 5, and that people will come to believe it even as they see others suffering for it. Joyfully undeterred in our faith. 
by God's grace, that's what we'll be. And see, wouldn't it be wonderful to have the reputation as being joyful people who can't keep quiet about Jesus and his goodness, even when our premier implies that uh, people who hold to a biblical view of sexuality are bigoted, hate-filled, and divisive. Joyfully undeterred, but thirdly, genuinely repentant. The third thing the Thessalonian church teaches us is what it looks like to be genuinely repentant in our faith. A helpful way to think about repentance is perhaps the idea of making a kind of 180-degree turn in direction or making a U-turn in life. In the last couple of verses, uh, Paul gives us the before and after picture of the Thessalonian church. It shows how they made a U-turn when it came to God. Before the gospel, they lived normal, ancient, pagan lives. They followed man-made idols, false religions, and worshipped them. But after the gospel, they lived radically different lives, throwing away their idols to follow and worship the true and living God alone, who they come to meet in hearing of Jesus. You see, it's this great change that actually amazed the world around them and made them such a talking point throughout the world. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. They tell how you turned, from, got, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. That's actually a beautiful description of genuine repentance. I like to kind of imagine the conversations within the Thessalonian households who had believed the gospel message. I think of a dad speaking to his family and saying, like, while it's, it's time to make some changes, kids, we're not going to Zeus's temple anymore. We're not going to have those worthless statues sitting in our lounge room anymore. All the prayers, the sacrifices, the rituals you see our neighbours doing, we're not doing that anymore. We follow Jesus now. We worship him. We live his way. But why, Dad? We've always done those things. What will our neighbours say? What will the kids at school say about us? Doesn't matter what they say, Jesus is worth it. You think those idols can make us right with God? They're lifeless. But Jesus lives, as Paul said, he can make us right with God through his death for us. He's the only one who will save us from the wrath of God, which we deserve because of our sin. Kids, we're going to need to be patient and trust Jesus now as we wait for his return. You see, the Thessalonians had made a life-saving decision to let go of their idols and take hold of the true God. Genuine repentance. Uh, in 2019, Kanye West declared he was all in for Jesus and declared that he'd basically become a, a fully-fledged follower of Christ. He even released a new album called Jesus is King. And we all long to see Kanye keep going in his new trust in Jesus, I'm sure. But there was a wonderful little moment when he was being interviewed on the Jimmy Kimmel show, which you see up there. 
and Jimmy Kimmel asked him, uh, would you consider yourself to be a Christian music artist now? And Kanye replied, uh, I'm just a Christian everything. And I think that's what genuine repentance kind of makes of a person. Becoming a Christian everything. Every aspect of your life coming under the authority and influence of Jesus. Now, perhaps you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian. Or perhaps you're still figuring out whether you want to be a Christian everything, which is the only type of Christian there is, might I say. Perhaps you're thinking, is it worth making such a radical change in my life where I, I stop living life on my own terms and give my life to Jesus and live on his terms? Is it worth making that change? You see, as the Thessalonians came to see, that is a radical change worth making. For it is Jesus and Jesus alone who rescues you from the coming wrath. God has set a day when he will judge the world for our sin and rebellion against him. We will actually all stand before God on that judgment day. And on that day, there is only one decision that you will be overjoyed that you had made during your time on earth. Only one. It won't be the decision to invest more time in your career. It won't be the decision to get married to the person of your dreams. It won't be the decision to keep worshipping the idols of your family religion to keep the peace. It won't be the decision to live it up and have fun for the short time you're here on earth. It will be the decision to actually let go of all those idols and hold fast to Jesus as the one who has paid for your sin at the cross and given you the hope of life through his resurrection from the dead. It will be your decision to turn to Jesus in genuine repentance. See, that decision will mean that on that great day of judgment, you will meet Jesus not as God's judge who condemns you, but as God's saviour who welcomes you into eternal life. See, if Kanye West has put his trust in Jesus, then all his fame and money pale in comparison to what he has now. He has a relationship with God and the hope of future resurrection. Actually, Jesus compares trusting in him, compares coming into his kingdom to a merchant who found a pearl of unspeakable worth. When he finds it, this merchant rightly goes away and sells everything. He gives it up. He sells it off to buy that pearl. Jesus is worth giving up everything for. And if you're already a Christian, that is what you need to keep remembering too. Seductive idols, whether it's things like money or being liked or sexual pleasure or romantic love, they will always beg for your allegiance. And some have wandered away from Christ to pursue them. 
but Christ calls us as his church to keep letting go of them and holding fast to Jesus, our rescuer, genuinely repentant. Uh, In Paul's opening thanksgiving here in chapter 1, we get a picture of the kind of church that pleases Jesus, where we are driven by a gospel agenda, joyfully undeterred in the face of opposition, and genuinely repentant. And the wonderful thing about my 18 years at Bundy now is that these things have been largely my experience. I've loved how the gospel has always remained in central in the preaching and the teaching and the service here. I've loved the wise and careful guidance our pastors have given to us during moments of societal hostility or opposition. I've seen people year after year turning to Jesus for the first time and so many who are striving to live lives marked by genuine repentance. See, these are the things that actually led me to join Bundy when I was in first year uni. They are what led me to do a ministry traineeship here. They are the things I love about being a pastor here. Like the Thessalonians, we're not perfect, but I am encouraged to see commitment to the priorities Jesus wants us to have. But as Don Carson mentioned earlier, a healthy church is only one generation away from being an unhealthy church. See, we don't want to lose our gospel focus. We don't want to become fearful in the face of opposition or think we can have one foot in Jesus' camp and the other foot in the camp of the world. But if we want to be a church that continues to please Jesus, we actually need to ask for God's help. See, did you notice that throughout all this chapter, Paul isn't actually giving thanks to the Thessalonians for what he sees among them? It's not, thank you, Thessalonians. It's, thank you, God. Verse 2. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that meant they received the gospel not simply with words, but with power, verse 5. It was the work of the Holy Spirit that meant amidst severe suffering, they still remain joyful, verse 6. Paul had been praying for this church and God had answered his prayers. And actually, this gets to the heart of how any church remains on track. We pray So you and I are still sinners. We are naturally inclined to get caught up and distracted by matters peripheral to the gospel. We are naturally inclined to cower in the face of opposition. We are naturally inclined to return to the seductive idols that we once left behind. I have that inclination. You have that inclination. But praise be to God that we have his spirit in us, among us. And so there is hope for us. So let's take a note from Paul's book here and be a people committed to praying for our church. Make it a pattern in your personal life over breakfast on the way to work to pray for one or two others here in the 5pm. The daily devotion email gives a list of around four names each day. Come to the monthly prayer meeting. Don't disappear once a month when it happens. Come and pray for us and pray for our world. And make it a priority in your growth group time this year to pray those big prayers 
for our church that align with the three things that we've looked at tonight. Keep your individual requests coming in growth group, but don't neglect to pray for the health of our church generally. And you see, by God's grace, as we ask for God's help, we will keep following the Thessalonian model, a church driven by the gospel agenda, joyfully undeterred, and genuinely repentant. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work that you did among this early church in Thessalonica. Thank you for the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit which changes us to be a people eager to live your way. And we ask that you would change us by your gospel and spirit. In your mercy, keep us on track as a church which is driven by the gospel, joyfully undeterred and genuinely repentant. Amen.